Good to be here as always. Today, we are going to finish the book of Exodus. It's been close to two years, I would think, right? Probably a year and a half, two years that we've been in this book, so we're coming to the end. So let's see what God has in store for us tonight. So I'm just going to start by praying this morning, and then you can stand, and we'll read Exodus chapter 39, uh, verses 32 to 43. But of course, we're going to do all of chapter 40 as well. So let's pray. Why don't you stand with me? I'm going to pray, and then we will get started. Heavenly Father, the one who is enthroned in heaven, Lord God, but you are so much greater than heaven or anything. You are God, Lord. You, you've always existed, Lord God. You are all-powerful. You are the almighty God, Lord God. And we say these things. These are names of you. It's who you are, Lord God, but how awesome is that? And we're here to gather to, to worship you because who other is worthy to be the object of our worship but the one who always was and always will be? So help us, Lord God, to grow closer to you. Help us to have a better understanding of you after we leave here tonight, Lord God, and we pray, Lord God, as you're building your church, as we just sung, Lord, well, we are your church here in Hasbrook Heights. And I pray, Lord, that you would build us up in the most holy faith through the preaching of your word. So give us strength from the Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> okay, Exodus 39, I'm going to read in verse 32. It says, Thus all the work of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting was completed. And the sons of Israel did according to all that the Lord had commanded Moses, so they did. They brought the tabernacle to Moses, the tent, and all its furnishings, its clasps, its boards, its bars, and its pillars, and its sockets, and the covering of ram skins dyed red, and the covering of porpoise skins, and the screening veil, the ark of the testimony, and its poles, and the mercy seat, the table, and all its utensils, and the bread of the presence the pure gold lampstand with its arrangement of lamps and all its utensils and the oil for the light and the gold altar and the anointing oil and the fragrant incense and the veil for the doorway of the tent, the bronze altar and its bronze grating, its poles and its utensils, the laver and its stand, the hangings for the court, its pillars, its sockets and the screen for the gate of the court its cords and its pegs and all the equipment for the service of the tabernacle for the tent of meeting, the woven garments for, the, for ministering in the holy place and the holy garments for Aaron the priest and the garments of his sons to minister as priests. So the sons of Israel did all the work according to all that the Lord had commanded Moses. And Moses examined all the work and behold, they had done it just as the Lord had commanded. This they had done so Moses blessed them. All right, you may be seated. So I don't have any headings, but if I was to put a heading for this first section here, I would put it as inspection. So we see this, that there is much told to the Israelites that they were to follow. And if we've been reading and paying attention, nothing would be accepted unless it was done exactly the way the Lord commanded. We know, again, that Moses was the leader. 
He was uniquely set apart by the Lord for the ministry in which he was serving. The Lord even reminded the Israelites that he spoke with Moses plainly face to face. He was unlike the rest of the people, really unlike the rest of the prophets, right? That he spoke with them plainly and face to face. Everything that had taken place so far was through Moses. He was the instrument God used to deliver the people from bondage in Egypt. He was the one who met with God on a holy mountain. He was the one that God chose to deliver the written law that God gave him. And all the instructions for the tabernacle were given again through Moses. And again, I believe that Moses was a type of Christ because of all that he was and did. He was, if you really look at Moses, he was a kind of king. We don't give him that title, but his function was that kind of like a king, right? He was the top dog, I guess you can say, in Israel. He was also kind of a priest in that he was the main go-between or mediator between God and the people, right? We <clears throat> he was also a kind of prophet in that God spoke to him plainly, and he, in turn, conveyed everything that God said to him back to Israel. And the prophet's job was always to say, thus says the Lord, and Moses was faithful in doing so. We saw that for a time when Moses was away, Aaron was kind of left in charge, and what did they do? They sinned greatly by making the golden calf. So Moses was mightily used by God. And if you think of anyone that's been used like Moses was being used, right, it could have given, a big, uh, could have given him a big head, right? He could have started becoming boastful and arrogant and prideful, thinking that he was more than he really was, but he remained humble throughout his whole life. In Numbers chapter 12, verse 3, we read this, that now the man Moses was very humble, more than any man who was on the face of the earth. Now, that's a, a very great statement to say about the man Moses and his humility. We know that God resists the proud man, but he gives grace to the humble. And we certainly know that the greatest display of humility was demonstrated by our Lord Jesus Christ. So if we look at a leader's job, right, it is the leader's job to examine whatever they're leading, to make sure everything is done correctly. And this is true in any context, right? Not just within the body of Christ with God's people. Their job was to examine. If you think of when there is maybe a home project or where you need to get a building permit or the contractor, right? You have to get an architect. You get plans being made, right? Well, the contractor has to follow these blueprints for success of the job. And when corners are cut, several things may happen. Well, first, the project will not be as well put together as it could have been. If you've ever seen a project where corners were cut, right, it might look very good, maybe even for the first year, maybe two years goes by, but then you start seeing all the things. I think of uh, Jasper as a mason, right? If you don't follow certain things or... All of a sudden, there's all these cracks. Well, why is that? I mean, at the time, everything is going to get a little bit worn. But if you don't follow the, the blueprints for success, you're not going to have success. And we know that in these modern times, there's some pretty foolish codes that are out there. If you're a contractor, you may know this, and there's really bad blueprints 
bad architects, bad designs. I'm in uh, construction myself, and it happens all the time. They're terrible designs. There's so many things that conflict with each other because it's not a perfect design. But we know that everything God says is perfect and flawless in every possible way. So in regards to the tabernacle, God alone was the chief architect. And as the chief architect, what God told Moses to do was not lacking in one thing. It was absolutely perfect. And what this also means is that everything that was said to do had a purpose. God is a God of purpose. Every detail was necessary. So from the builder's perspective, to miss one aspect or step was to fall short of God's perfect design. The final product would not be what it should be. So just like God's perfect law, right? If any man keeps the whole law, there's a hypothetical, right? In the New Testament, if any man keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, no one has ever done that. But what happens if that was to happen, he's what? He's guilty of it all. Why? Because the law is one singular unit and it must be obeyed perfectly. Obedience to that law was and still is for us as the church who are under grace. Obedience to that law is a recipe for success and the means, the primary means by which we worship the one true God. We obey his law. We love God. We love people. It's very simple, right? When the Israelites broke the second commandment, remember John preached on this, some would say that they maybe even seem to have good intentions. But good intentions, that's not an excuse. That doesn't give you an okay to do what you did. But really, they were guilty, I believe, of rationalizing. Where is Moses? What are we to do? Our leader is not here. Where is God? There's nothing for us to see. Well, let us make an image and disregard what he already said in the second commandment. And that's what happened. And unlike their journey up to this point, the nation of Israel, at this point in their history, they actually did follow the blueprints and they didn't veer off not even one bit. So here we have Moses as the inspector. And we have already saw nine times in chapter 39, nine times, that's a lot of times, that they did everything just as the Lord commanded them. There's a reason why God is saying that to us. But we are reminded that Moses had to check to make sure that this happened. Remember, Moses is writing this sometime later, letting us know all the details, right? So Moses had to inspect. So I want to give a very important and simple application to this idea of examining inspection, okay? We're reminded, I believe, of two things. First, every leader, very simple, must follow the blueprints for success. Not one lead. There's no exceptions to the rules. They must follow the blueprints for success. We saw this clearly with Moses as he did everything as he was supposed to do and didn't give any other commands to the people, but only that which God told him to do. If we look at this from a human perspective, and when I say this, I'm reminding us again of our sinful fallen self, or our sinful tendencies. Again, Moses could have added his own twist on things, right? He could, have, he could have said everything that God said, but maybe just added his twist. But he didn't. 
Maybe he could have gotten away with it, or maybe not, but the bottom line is he didn't. He followed exactly what God told him to do. He followed the recipe for success. More so, because he did this, we can take it further and say that he valued it. He held it in very, very high esteem. He prized it more than anything because it came from the holy, righteous, sovereign God. So everything that God gave him, he was going to hold in the highest regard. And because of this, he said only that which was prescribed to him. If you guys are thinking again, regulative principle of worship, pastors talked about it. We've talked about it in Sunday school. It's all over this message of how important that is to worship God the way he has told us to worship him, which is the only right way. So as a result, Moses was certainly not going to set up in any tent that fell short of what God had said for him to do. So he had to check. So first, for God's sake, right, he must obey his Lord. And secondly, for the people's sake, right? It was best for them to do what God told them to do. It's very simple, right? It's not really that deep, the concept. Yet it's very simple. And yet as human beings, we fail so often by trying to do our way instead of God's way. Again, if you look at uh, chapter 39, verse 43, again, I'll read it. And Moses examined all the work, and behold, they had done it just as the Lord had commanded. This they had done, so Moses blessed them. We see here again the concept that blessing comes after the obedience, right? If we want the blessings of God, we must obey. And second, Every other person, we said the leader needs to follow the blueprints for success, but every other person must also follow the same blueprints for success. We're all on the same thing here. Remember that by calling it the blueprints for success, we are acknowledging that there will be no success apart from them. And if any of you have, are in my Sunday school class, you will know that we are in 1 Corinthians, right? And we did, we just finished the first Four chapters of First Corinthians. And just to sum it up, okay, in those four chapters speaks of the contrast of the wisdom of mankind or the world, which is really foolishness, right? And the wisdom of God, which from the world's perspective is foolishness, but it really is true wisdom. And in those chapters, we saw that the believers in Corinth became very arrogant, became very ununified as a people, right? They were divided. They were linking themselves with certain people, right? And there was these divisions within a body, and that's never good. And they were guilty of utilizing worldly methods, a worldly means of functioning within the body of Christ. And this meant that they added things that weren't things that came from the Lord. And they might have had good intentions. They probably thought, hey, this is a good idea. But it's not a good idea because God already told us what to do and he's perfect in everything that he does. And in that chapter, in chapter 4, verse 1 and 2, it says this. Paul says, let a man regard us. Here's the apostle Paul, right? And probably Apollos he's talking about and some other leaders, but the apostles in general. Let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ. So here you have apostles, a very, very high-ranking people, right? They were the authority of Jesus Christ. He says, regard us in this manner as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. 
In this case, he says, moreover, it is required of stewards that one be found trustworthy. Right? A servant, a steward is to be found faithful. My master told me to do this. My master said to watch this, protect this, look over this. We are to be faithful in obeying the master exactly how he told us to do it. If you jump in chapter 4 and verse 6, it says, Now these things, brethren, I have figuratively applied to myself and Apollos for your sakes, so that in us you may learn not to exceed what is written, so that no one of you will become arrogant in behalf of one against the other. So he's saying, don't exceed what is written. So Paul is now reminding the church at Corinth that everything they should do ought only to come from what God has said. That is the place that all of us want to be. To do it any other way is to imply that you know better than God. Whether you think you think you're doing that at that moment or not, that is ultimately what is implied when you do that. And the result will be many ideas from many people who are all sinful and depraved, and that will only lead to disunity, right? It happens all the time. We see it in the world. We see it in the church when we bring those worldly methods within the body of Christ. So our unity is in God and in what he says. So Moses, being who he was, was very adamant about making sure everything was done according to what was shown him on the holy mountain. This is what you guys must, must do. And we know that the people did it. Let's move on. There's a lot of reading here in chapter 40. It says, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, On the first day of the first month you shall set up the tabernacle of the tent of meeting. You shall place the ark of the testimony there, and you shall screen the ark with the veil. You shall bring in the table and arrange what belongs on it. And you shall bring in the lampstand and mount its lamps. Moreover, you shall set the gold altar of incense before the ark of the testimony and set up the veil for the doorway to the tabernacle. You shall set the altar of burnt offering in front of the doorway of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting. You shall set the laver between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water on it. You shall set up the court all around and hang up the veil for the gateway of the court. Then you shall take the anointing oil and anoint the tabernacle and all that is in it and shall consecrate it and all its furnishings, and it shall be holy. You shall anoint the altar of burnt offering and all its utensils, and consecrate the altar, and the altar shall be most holy. You shall anoint the laver and its stand and consecrate it. Then you shall bring Aaron and his sons to the doorway of the tent of meeting and wash them with water. You shall put the holy garments on Aaron and anoint him and consecrate him that he may minister as a priest to me. You shall bring his sons and put tunics on them, and you shall anoint them even as you have anointed their father, that they may minister as priests to me. And their anointing will qualify them for a perpetual priesthood throughout their generations. Thus Moses did, according to all that the Lord had commanded him, so he did. Now in the first month of the second year, on the first day of the month, the tabernacle was erected. Moses erected the tabernacle and laid its sockets and set up its boards and inserted its bars and erected its pillars. He spread the tent over the tabernacle and put the, co tabernacle and put the covering of the tent on top of it, just as the Lord had commanded Moses. 
Then he took the testimony and put it into the ark and attached the poles to the ark and put the mercy seat on top of the ark. He brought the ark into the tabernacle and set up a veil for the screen and screened off the ark of the testimony just as the Lord commanded Moses. Then he put the table in the tent of meeting on the north side of the tabernacle outside the veil. He set the arrangement of bread and order on it, uh, bread and order on it before the Lord, just as the Lord commanded Moses. Then he placed the lampstand in the tent of meeting opposite the table on the south side of the tabernacle. He lighted the lamps before the Lord, just as the Lord had commanded Moses. Then he placed the gold altar in the tent of meeting in front of the veil. And he burned fragrant incense on it, just as the Lord commanded Moses. Then he set up the veil for the doorway of the tabernacle. He set the altar of burnt offering before the doorway of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting and offered on it burnt offering and, a meal, and the meal offering, just as the Lord commanded Moses. He placed the labor between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water on it for its washing. From it, Moses and Aaron and his sons washed their hands and their feet. And when they entered the tent of meeting, and when they approached the altar, they washed just as the Lord commanded Moses. He erected the court all around the tabernacle and the altar and hung up the veil for the gateway of the court. Thus Moses finished the work. That's a lot of reading. Okay, a lot of reading. But if we look at this, the first half, the first 16 verses, speak of the Lord commanding Moses to go ahead and set up the tabernacle. They did all the work. They collected it. They did all the stuff that, all the articles, everything was done. Now he's commanding them to go ahead. Now set up the work. And in verse 17 to 33, we just read that they went ahead and in fact did it. So go do this, and then they did it. The term again, the, the phrase, just like the Lord had commanded him, again, nine more times in chapter 40, the same thing. Nine more times showing us that there was total obedience. Okay, And that's a beautiful, beautiful picture of how we should be, only if Israel kept that same testimony throughout their years, right? But here we see total obedience. So as I was looking at this and trying to find something to take from this that wasn't out from left field, right? And what I mean by this is that as preachers, right, we want to find some kind of application from the text to help us in our current context, right? It is our job, first and foremost, to teach the text properly, trusting that the accurate presenting of the scripture is the most powerful in any believer's life. The Holy Spirit will do the rest. But we also don't want to make more of something that actually isn't there, right? We don't want to make more in trying to get application and try to add more things to it. The scripture doesn't need any help. So I want us to just go back and look at something for a moment. It's in Exodus chapter 25 in verse 8 and 9. And Exodus 25, in verse 8 and 9, we read this. Before this, the first seven verses, I read this last week, that they made the contribution. All the things that were needed, they collected, right? Then verse 8 says, Let them construct a sanctuary for me, that I may dwell among them, according to all that I am going to show you as the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all its furniture, just so, just so you shall construct it. 
So when we look at this, we see specific details for a specific purpose, and that is God dwelling or tabernacling among them. Now we know that a tent cannot contain the Lord of glory, right? It cannot contain the Lord of glory. We know that the heaven of heavens itself cannot contain him. But in a very real way, his presence was manifested in the sanctuary, but it had to be done according to his standards for this to happen. If it wasn't done according to those standards, this would not happen, right? Everything that they were required to do, from the free giving, the gathering of the materials, the talent given to the people to do the work, remember Aholiab and Bezalel, right? And the strength that people needed to do the work. All this was possible because of the God who provides, right? He gives us, he gives to us for the purpose of worship. And not just any worship, but right worship. God wants us to worship him correctly. If we don't worship him correctly, it's not true worship. If you open in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 5, and in reference to the priests, um, Hebrews chapter 8 tells us a few things that are important. But in verse 5, it says concerning these priests that they serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things, just as Moses was warned by God when he was about to erect a tabernacle. For see, he says, that you make all things according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain. So God equips us to do only one thing, and that is his will. He's not going to equip us to do something contrary to his will. And when we understand and accept that he has equipped us for something great, what should follow next is the actual believing and the actual doing. That's what we just read in that very long part of chapter 40. Told them to do, and then they did. So we have to believe and we have to do. And without the doing, no one will see the ways that the Lord manifests himself through his people. Is Jesus here on earth anymore? He's not. He's in heaven. He's coming back. But how are people going to see Christ on earth? They can't unless his people show Christ on earth, right? And what are his people? Well, God tells us that his people are holy temples. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19 to 20 says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. Our bodies are for the Lord. It is His temple. We are to be living sacrifices. We know that. And when we demonstrate this, God is manifested in a very, very real way through His Spirit at work in His people. That's why we exist, right? What else does the Scripture say? We all have spiritual gifts, right? Every single one of us has spiritual gifts. And those supernatural gifts are for what? They're all for a purpose, right? Not self-glory, but God's glory. 
Not for us, the person who is equipped it for, but for the body of Christ, that the body of Christ may be built up to look more and more like the Christ who saved us. We think about that for a second. It said, God is not going to equip us to do something that's not his will. Well, we all have different spiritual gifts, and some people are guilty of wanting another spiritual gift. They're not satisfied with how God has equipped them. But we need to think that everything, everything that God gives from the Spirit is for the building up of the body, right? Everything he gives us is for the building up of the body. So that means that God has equipped me and you with something that every one of us here needs, right? Think about that. When we are disobedient and not operating in the gifts that God has gifted us in, we're neglecting the body of Christ, and we're neglecting the God who gave us those gifts. This is so important. So when we see temples of God living like temples of God, we see that very God at work in this world. Us as believers see it, God's people see it, and guess what? Even the world may see it, okay? Even the world may see it. Ephesians 2.10, love this verse, reminds us that we are his workmanship, his handiwork, right? Created in Christ Jesus for what? Good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. And those good works are done by the power of the Spirit that is inside us. So who does the preparation? God does just like he did with the tabernacle. Why? Is it so we can do nothing? God forbid, right? It is so that glimpses of heaven can be seen on this wretched and sinful earth. And that's going to happen through God's people. So if God has equipped us to do, then for God's sake, we must do. Nation of Israel did all this work, all the details, they followed it. Now they had to set it up and actually do it. Continue now to move on and do what you're supposed to do as my people, as a nation. It is the only reason for our existence is to do the very things that God has called us to do. That's why we have breath in our lungs. That's why we are still alive at this moment. He's not done with us. He wants to use us with the giftedness that he has put in us. It's his work. It's not our work. This is so important. Let's finish. Verse 34. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the sons of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out until the day when it was taken up. For throughout all their journeys, the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and there, and there was fire in it by night in the sight of all the house of Israel. So if you look at this, up to this point, we know that Moses spoke with God somewhat freely, right? But when the tabernacle was completed, and all was set up, even he was not able to enter. 
Why was this? Because the tabernacle was alone whose dwelling? God's dwelling, right? And no one else. And even though the heaven of heavens cannot contain him, and even though this tabernacle could not contain him because everything contained him, but because everything was done accordingly as God has prescribed, God was pleased to let his presence dwell there in a very real way. This was pictured in the wonderful glory of the cloud and the fire that emanated out from within and also from above and all around. God's beautiful glory. Not his total glory, but glory, right? And all this was a picture of God's presence, a picture of God's protection, his salvation, his acceptance of the people, and also him still being separate from his people, right? No one can go in this tabernacle at that time. And if we remember, there was only one way to enter the tabernacle. And this was the one and only way to enter the tabernacle. And in order to enter, there had to be blood. There had to be a blood sacrifice. In order for the high priest to enter the Holy of Holies once a year, there had to be a blood sacrifice. But because this was a type and a picture and a foreshadowing, what took place in it was continual and never-ending. Because why? The blood of bulls and goats could never do what only the righteous, spotless Lamb of God can do. Listen to Arkent Hughes on this. He says something very good. He says, What God did for Israel was glorious, and in fact it was. Their exodus from Egypt was so famous that people are still talking about it today, and we're talking about it right now as we meet. But as glorious as it was, it cannot compare to the glorious things that God has done for us. The glory in the tabernacle was the climax of exodus, but not the climax of redemption. I love this. He was only the, it was only the first glimmerings of the glory that God has prepared for us in Jesus Christ. The book of Exodus really is his story. Jesus is the Moses of our salvation, the mediator who goes before us, before God. Jesus is the lamb of our Passover, the sacrifice for our sins. Jesus is our way out of Egypt to deliver the deliverer who baptizes us in the sea of his grace. Jesus is our bread in the wilderness, the provider who gives us what we need for daily life. Jesus is our voice from the mountain, declaring his law for our lives. Jesus is the altar of our burning, through whom we offer praise up to God. Jesus is the light on our lampstand, the source of our life and light. Jesus is the basin of our cleansing, the sanctifier of our souls. Jesus is our great high priest who prays for us at the altar of incense. And Jesus is the blood on the mercy seat, the atonement that reconciles us to God. The great God of the Exodus has saved us in Jesus Christ. End quote. It's a rather long quote, but I think he nails it, right? He says it beautifully. He says it perfectly. Douglas Stewart says the following as well. He says, wonderful as this was, it was but a shadow of the closeness to God available now to his corporate people known as the church 
and his direct indwelling available to every individual who repents of sin and trusts in God's gift of salvation through Christ. His new covenants knew Moses and his for, his for all time honored and accepted representative, rescuer, lawgiver, law ender, and heavenly temple. We always say it's all about Christ, right? You've heard of the expression, the Old Testament, which we're in, is the new concealed, and the New Testament is the old revealed. And this is so true, brothers and sisters. But what are we doing with the realities that we find in our Lord Jesus Christ as the church? This tabernacle was, in fact, glorious. But it wasn't the surpassing glory. That's my title, by the way. I forgot to mention that in the beginning. It wasn't the surpassing glory. This was all part of the old covenant. But we, as the church, are ministers of the new covenant. And in the new covenant, we have perfect confidence. They didn't have perfect confidence back then. We have perfect confidence. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 4 to 10, we read this. Such confidence we have through Christ towards God. Not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God, who also made us adequate as servants of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. But of the ministry of death and letters engraved on stones came with glory, so that the sons of Israel could not look intently at the face of Moses because of the glory of his face, fading as it was, how will the ministry of the Spirit fail to be even more with glory? For if the ministry of condemnation has glory, much more does the ministry of righteousness abound in glory. For indeed, what had glory in this case, has no glory because of the glory that surpasses it. And yes, indeed, this tabernacle had both frightening glory and beautiful glory. Colossians 1.19 says, For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Him, that is, Christ Jesus. Not in the tabernacle, but in Christ Jesus. Hebrews 1.3 says, And He, our Lord Jesus Christ, is the radiance of His glory and the exact representation of His nature and upholds all things by the word of His power. When He had made purification of sins, He sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. In Hebrews 4.14-16, Therefore, since we have such a great high priest who has passed through the heavens... Jesus, the Son of God, let us, the church, hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. Are we doing that, church? Let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help 
in time of need. So what am I saying here, brothers and sisters? We have it made, don't we? If you think about what we have in Christ. Remember when Paul was talking about his, his, uh, all his accomplishments, he said, they're nothing compared to the surpassing uh, greatness of knowing Christ his Lord. Do we realize how great we have it in Christ Jesus? Do we realize that nothing is lacking in regards to our salvation? Do we realize that nothing else can be done that hasn't already been done in Christ Jesus? We have salvation, right? So let us embrace being saved. How do we do that? By understanding and embracing the part of salvation that we are currently in. Maybe the hardest part of salvation, which is sanctification. So let me close with 2 Peter chapter 1. I want to read verses 3 to 11. And I'm going to just close with the words of Jesus because I think he speaks beautifully here. It says, Seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. Before I read on, just listen to that for a second again. Seeing that his divine power has granted to us, who is the us here but the church, right? Everything pertaining to life and godliness, nothing is lacking here, right? Through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence, For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises, so that by them, church, you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Now for this very reason also, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence. And in your moral excellence... Knowledge. And in your knowledge, self-control. And in your self-control, perseverance. And in your perseverance, godliness. And in your godliness, brotherly kindness. And in your brotherly kindness, love. What is all this stuff here? This is the fruit of the Spirit, essentially, is it not? This is all stuff that comes from God... That only God can do, but yet it can, it's of God, but yet it can be through us people who are his people. And then he says, church, for if these qualities are yours and are increasing, not decreasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted having forgotten his purification from his former sins. Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. For in this way, the entrance into the internal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be abundantly supplied to you.
Think of how good we have it in Christ. Think of how all that we've been learning up to this point in Exodus, all these things from the first land that had to be slain and the blood being on a doorpost and a lintel, all that God did from his, the cloud and the fire leading them out from Egypt, settling them, all the grace that was shown to them, all the things that they had to do, all the articles, what they represent, the temple, the priest, Moses, all these ones that acted as types and shadows of the real thing that we have. Think of how great we have it. Yeah, it's a simple message. But it can be powerful in our lives if we allow the Spirit to do the work that, he's, that He wants us to do. That's the only reason why we exist. For in this way, the entrance in the, into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will He abundantly supply to you. Do we want that? We should all want that. And we have that if we believe it. Look what He said in the beginning nothing is lacking. He has granted to us everything, everything that we need to live the life of godliness. Our salvation is complete. Yeah, we're not in glory yet, but it's ours in the future. Yeah, we're in this difficult part of sanctification, and I understand it's difficult because my flesh always wants to do the opposite of what the Spirit of God inside of me wants to do. But guess what? We have the ability to do it. And I'll end what I say all the time. And I don't apologize for it. Without faith, it's impossible to please him. Do we believe this? Moses believed that if he was to obey, the people believed that if they were to follow this, this is of importance. We have to follow this exactly the way God told us. And when we do that, and they in fact did, they experienced the blessing of God. So let's experience the blessing of God by being totally obedient, by worshiping Him the way He told us to worship Him, His way, which is the only way, the righteous way, the glorious way. So let's do that for Christ's sake. Father, I thank You for Your Word. I thank You for carrying us along as we've been from Genesis to Exodus. You've blessed us. You've showed us your ways. You've showed us your glory. You're going to continue to show us your glory in the book of Leviticus. You continue to show us your glory every day. I pray that we would not miss it. It's there if we would just see and stop and look how great you have been in our lives and all the wonderful works that you do in our life with the greatest work, our salvation. And it's the greatest work. And because it's the greatest work, you alone are to be magnified and glorified because it's your work, the work that only God can do. So Lord, help us to have an attitude of gratitude, which I talked about last week. Let that be our motivation. And that we would keep our eyes fixed and gazed upon you. The surpassing glory of whatever glory you demonstrated in the Old Testament. You are the true glory. 
You are perfect glory. Glory is who you are in one sense. So help us to grow closer to you and continue to have a better understanding of you and our place here in this life so that we can be worthy vessels, which you've called us to be. And we thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.